show and tell. Every Friday in second grade elementary school, I loved show and tell. It was, in fact, our first public speaking course. It offered a time of sharing something that was important or momentous in our lives, and it was something we could get excited about. By showing and telling, we could draw the other students into something new, perhaps something they'd never thought about or had. I don't remember a time when I couldn't think of something to show before the class. I remember singing in German, an old song that my grandfather taught me, but beyond that, I can't remember anything else I might have sh showed. Today's theme is show and tell, and there's a lot of showing and telling going on today. In the closing story of his gospel about the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, Luke has something new to show and tell. There were definitely more disciples than the twelve, and there were more disciples like the two that were walking on that road. Luke wants to show and tell these readers not only what happened to these two, but in a way that reminds the first century Jew of their heritage. Luke's story is a show and tell of Jesus' resurrection in light of what God had shown and told in Israel's past, which altogether opened the eyes of the two disciples walking as well as those reading Luke's gospel later. Plus, the show and tell is for us today and about us today as well. But first we meet the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. They had nothing to show and tell. For them, show and tell was over. The story had finished. They had spent several days in Jerusalem, and since Palm Sunday they had been staying at the house of Lazarus in Bethany with Jesus and the other disciples. Emmaus was about a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem, and they were most likely on their way home. They went away defeated. They were exhausted from the last three days of events surrounding who they thought would be their Messiah. From the text, it looks like they had secondhand reports about people who went to Christ's tomb but did not go themselves. Perhaps since they could not walk home on the Sabbath, which was the day after they took Jesus down from the cross, they had to wait until the Easter Sunday to leave. They had a long day of walking ahead of them. I can see the picture if you let me create it, the scene for you. Early in the morning, while the women were going back to the tomb, these two disciples were probably getting ready to head back to Emmaus. The women went early in the morning, then ran back to tell the disciples and told them they saw and heard the testimony of the angel that Christ had risen. Why stick around? Why continue? As some of the disciples went back with the women, these two left. These disciples had seen their messiahs come and go in recent history. There had been other Jewish leaders who had come in revolt, attempting to overthrow their Roman overlords and who had met with, well, failure. Gamaliel in the book of Acts mentioned two of them last week in our reading, who rose up in revolt against Rome and who, along with their army or band of soldiers, were completely decimated, defeated, and executed, crucified. Gamaliel said at that time to leave the disciples alone as they preached because they were being persecuted. He said if it was from man, they would be crucified like the others who tried to lead revolts. But if it were from God, they would not be able to stop the disciples from preaching. This, no doubt, was so current in the mind of the two walking on that road that they just left. Rather than a victory parade back to Emmaus, 
This journey was a liberation charade. They take this walk back to Emmaus as a lost mission, while the other disciples in Jerusalem were in hiding for fear of being hunted down and crucified as well. You see, the Romans didn't take lightly to Jews or anyone for that matter who rose up in revolt. Being crucified on the cross was not merely a death sentence as punishment for rising up, something like an electric chair. The Romans employed crucifixion as a display of power and authority. That is, anyone who were to attempt this again could count on a similar fate. That's why they mocked those on the cross to display their power, to come down and save themselves, see if you can defeat us now. And their corpses were left normally on the crosses until they had rotted, sometimes to skeletal remains, subject to being eaten by animals. These defiant revolutionaries were treated like animals, and they were treated inhumanely for that reason. It would make any person think twice about attempting something similar, and that's what the Romans wanted. A recent discovery of a drawing or glyph on a wall of a first-century building around the city of Emmaus was found recently. It was found on the walls of a Roman prep school for boys from around 50 A.D., here is what appeared on the wall of the school. It apparently is a drawing that a child made making fun of Alexamenos, whose family and himself worshipped or had worshipped Jesus. The translation of the scribbled Greek says, Alexamenos worshipping his God. It shows the humiliation and mockery of those on the cross as well as providing fodder to humiliate their faithful followers. With Alexamenos' hand raised, you see Jesus or a person on the cross with a donkey-like head and a cow-like body. Crucifixion was used as a tool of demoralization of character of those who followed revolutionary leaders against the government or early Christians whose allegiance was mocked to make them a spectacle and discourage others from becoming so stupid as to follow Christ. In some ways, it was worse for those who lived, being mocked, derided, humiliated. The way the Romans used crucifixion reminds me of what guerrillas used to do in the mountains of Guatemala during their insurrection, taking the heads of those who backed the government and impaled them on a stick outside family members' homes as a reminder to either join the guerrilla movement or die. So as the disciples walk along the road to Emmaus, this is what they were thinking. This is what they would now have to live with if recognized. Here they had placed their hopes, their resources, their might and power, their lives to free Israel from the Romans. They thought perhaps this one, this Jesus was indeed the one, the real Messiah, who was going to be able to accomplish this. And look, we were fortunate enough to be able, allowed to bury this one at least, only because of connections with Joseph of Arimathea and the connections that he had with Pilate but they were left with nothing to show for their efforts. But there is more show and tell from Luke here. Sure, Luke's ultimate goal, uh, his show and tell, is that Jesus is risen from the dead. And we take this revelation of Jesus to the two as proof of his resurrection, and it indeed is. This matters to our Western minds, proof. 
But Luke's primary purpose in telling all of this is not merely a factual proof. The way Luke determines to show and tell his first century audience of deflated and disillusioned disciples and those sympathetic Jews in a way that relates what happened here directly to their own history of other things that God's interaction with their people. And that escapes us for a rich understanding of what is going on here. Luke uses details in the telling of this story. And these first century Jews will see these details and the reason why the two disciples jumped for joy so quickly. The first detail in Luke's show and tell mentions Emmaus. This is an important show and tell town to understand the narrative. It's a town around seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, and recent excavations have turned up a huge platform in proof that the Ark of the Covenant was kept there. The Ark contained the first, com the the first covenant, or the Ten Commandments. And Emmaus, or as it's known in the Old Testament as Kiriath Jearim, just north of Jerusalem, was the southernmost extreme of the northern kingdom of Israel and the northernmost extreme of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was on this stretch of road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, now part of the Roman highway, that King David brought the Ark of the Covenant from Emmaus to Jerusalem, a triumphant parade of victory. After 586 BC, though, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and the Ark was no longer mentioned nor found anywhere else in Scripture. So Emmaus was, at one time anyway, a home for the Ark of the Covenant, the commandments of God, in triumph, procession, and the city, a spot that for a moment provided unity between the two kingdoms of Israel. Although this would have happened some 600 years before Jesus' time, the history was well known. But more recently, that is, some 100 years before Jesus, Emmaus had another story. A more important story. A Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV invaded Jerusalem and captured the city. He marched into the Jewish temple and erected a statue to the Greek god Zeus and slaughtered a pig on the altar of incense in the temple of the Lord. The Jews, outraged, rose up in revolt against the sacrilege, the desecration of their altar. This action was interpreted as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 9.27 at that time. A man named Jewish, Jew, Judas Maccabeus, a self-proclaimed Messiah in some ways, led a revolt against the king and won and liberated Israel, at least for the moment. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. The decisive battle took place at, you guessed it, Emmaus. This was a political victory. This was what the Messiah should do. This is what's being expected. And Luke's audience would remember this. It was a political victory. It did not last, as Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans later. But Luke's, Luke expected his audience to remember this show and tell. It's a clue. The two companions walking to a site steeped in an earlier redeeming victory of Israel is key. The two disciples want a Judas Maccabeus revolt. They expect a conquering hero in Jesus, but their preoccupation looking for military victories and military messiahs prevents them from seeing Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world. They said, 
And they told Jesus about, they told the Jews about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have him crucified. And then they said to Jesus, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, they did not recognize this stranger who had surprised them unexpectedly. But it is the show and tell of the encounter and dialogue between Jesus and these two disciples that shows and tells the key to the joy that they felt. Luke shows and tells his audience to see just how Christ revealed himself to Cleopas and his companion on this road and reminds his readers of something else that happened in their history. Not the town of Emmaus, but the way the story takes place. The way Jesus encounters these two disciples is well known to the Jews in the story of Samson. In Judges 13, we see God in action in a similar way that Jesus is doing with these two disciples on the road. Leading up to the birth of Samson, Manoah, the father, listens to his wife, who goes nameless, to tell the story of a visitor, who's also nameless, from God, an angel, who did not identify himself nor where he came from and they tell about Samson's birth. Manoah prays to God, Please, Lord, allow the man sent from God to visit us again, so he can teach us how we should raise the child to be born. God's angel visits the woman when she least expects it, and much like Jesus, joins the disciples on the road without naming himself, and she runs to tell her husband, Manoah, who invited the messenger to, as the text says, come in and stay a while with us, so we could prepare a young goat for us to eat. The unnamed visitor does not eat, but rather tells them to offer a sacrifice to God. They offer the goat in sacrifice to God with the smoke and fire ascending, and the angel of the Lord went up with the smoke and the fire into heaven. They knew at that instant that they had been in the presence of God, who was honored by the sacrifice, but could not eat it as one of them. It was at that moment that they ate that the two disciples also recognized that Jesus was God. It is the way this encounter took place that shows the disciples what is really happening here and becomes something that they can tell to others. Jesus stays with these disciples. He continues teaching the disciples as God did to Manoah. He unlocks the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures for them. He guides them to understand that the revolution has taken place already. The victory has been won. Redemption has taken place. Jesus shows them and tells them. They now see Jesus only when they see him in the fulfillment of Scripture, in the writings of Moses and the prophets, and they see him as did those with whom God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Jesus is the angel of the Lord, the word of God who appears to Manoah's wife, who sat with them in their house at that time, who did not reveal his name, to whom they offered sacrifice and went up in the smoke and fire, vanishing out of sight, as did Jesus after the meal with these two disciples. This seals it. This is Luke's show and tell for the disciples, not merely that Jesus rose from the dead, but that God was with them and Jesus was the Christ. 
This is what seals the joy for the disciples. They, too, have been visited by the Christ, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, the angel of the Lord incarnate. It is he who ate with them. Why eat? Because there is no more sacrifice to be made. He is flesh and blood and is one with us. Why eat? Because this is the new covenant made in his blood and body, the covenant of forgiveness and everlasting life that replaces the Ark of the Covenant that once was housed at Emmaus. When and where they least expect to see Jesus, he is there, among them, in his word, in fellowship, in love, so much so that their hearts were on fire. The heart is the center of the emotions for the Jews and from where emotional response originates. We would say, he blew our mind beyond comprehension. They would say, he made my heart explode with joy and love. What an experience to be approached by the Lord God in Christ himself in the same place where his old covenant is now replaced with his new covenant, only to realize that this cross meant for humiliation and destruction for anyone opposing Roman rule and domination, is not overcome with an army of soldiers like before, but is now overcome once and for all in the resurrection of life unto life eternal. What an experience. Now they have something to show for their faith. Now they have something to foreshow and tell. But what about your experience? What do you have to show? For your faith? What do you have to tell? Like the disciples, does your head hang low because Jesus was something different than you expected? Does he not deliver you from everything on this planted planet where there is triumph over the adversary, over illness, over the kingdom of evil in this world? Jesus comes to you today to reveal himself. While flesh and bone may be destroyed, and illness show its stronghold over the flesh, it is Christ who is victorious. Rome could not keep him on the cross. The stone could not keep him entombed. On the road, Jesus caught these disciples off guard. He turned what they thought was a lost cause into understanding the real nature of faith and who the Messiah was. He showed them that scripture was the key to understanding who he was. He reveals himself there. With heads hung low, they were thinking about only what they saw, those events surrounding them, their dreams not coming true, the time and effort that they invested, and according to them, all for naught. Jesus did not change their lives as they thought he would, but Jesus points to Scripture to dispel what they thought he was and see who he really is, and they got excited. Why? Because the Messiah came to complete and make whole their relationship with God. The resurrected Christ was leading the victory parade back to Emmaus with the new covenant in his blood, not the Ten Commandments in an ark, nor a spear and an arrow of a political leader. They didn't have to uncrucify Jesus in order to make him triumphant. He is alive and walks beside you on your road when you least expect it. He is alive and reveals himself to you his promises, his forgiveness, his righteousness, as he did for the two disciples. Where? In his word. His word meets you on the road of your life. 
to understand this world, its evils, its misconceptions, its illnesses, its oppression and depression, and look beyond it and seek him who has overcome these things. Saying, this too will pass is not the way he accompanies you on the road. He says, in my word, there you will find me, not waiting for something to pass. I will show you. I am the way and the truth and the life. Do you recognize Jesus on the road with you? Do you know he is walking with you? As he reveals himself in his word and he breaks bread, his body and blood with you. How has he walked with you in your life to show you who he is so that you can tell others as these two disciples did? Go, show what the Lord has done for you and tell others what that is as you walk with your Savior. Amen.